Welcome to Alici, News and Insights from the New York Courts. I'm John Carr. Today we have a special guest for our Diversity Dialogue segment, the Honorable Norman St. George, Deputy Chief Administrative Judge for the Courts outside of New York City. Judge St. George manages the day-to-day operations of trial-level courts in 57 counties outside of New York City, and that includes over 640 state-paid judges and more than 6,000 non-judicial employees. Judge St. George's judicial career began in 2004 when he was appointed and then elected to the Nassau County District Court. He was subsequently elected to Nassau County Court and Supreme Court. Before ascending the bench and as an attorney, Judge St. George practiced tax law, served as assistant district attorney, ran his own law firm, served as a managing partner of another firm, and along the way gained experience in a wide array of criminal, commercial, and civil matters. Judge St. George, a graduate of Hofstra University School of Law, was appointed Deputy Chief Administrative Judge in August 2021. Judge, thank you for your time. Uh, Let's let's go back to your roots, if we could. Uh, Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? What did your parents do? Who were your early role models and heroes? Well, good morning, John. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to spend some time chatting with you this morning. The story starts in and on a small island in the Caribbean, Jamaica, West Indies. My father grew up in Old Harbor, a small fishing village, and he came to this country on a track and soccer scholarship back in 1956. You know, it's an immigrant story had no money and this was his this was his chance to make a better life for himself and so he came here on this track scholarship to a college in the Midwest they had a relationship uh, the church in Jamaica had a relationship with this college in St. Louis Missouri and and really what he did was you know his inspiration was a poem by Henry Longfellow which was heights by great men and women reached and kept were not achieved by sudden flight but they, while their companions slept, were toiling upwards through the night. And he repeated that over and over to himself. When I was born, he repeated it to me. When my two daughters were born, I repeated it to them. And so he met my mother there, who was from the Midwest, of European background, and they fell in love. And ultimately, after college, they both moved to the Bronx. Uh, And I was born in the Bronx uh, and lived there until I was five. And then uh, my ma- my family moved to Long Island for, for really for school purposes to the uh, Roosevelt Freeport area. And at that time, that was a place where uh, minorities were welcome to, to purchase a home. My father always believed in education, so he went on to get three master's degrees, a doctorate degree from Columbia, became a psychiatrist. And my mother was a, uh, a school guidance counselor in the Long Beach School District. And so I went to, uh, basically, I went to public schools until sixth grade excellent education and then one day you know i was in the junior high school local junior high school and i asked my father if i could ride my bike to school and he asked why and i said because you're able to ride your bike to each class and so he was flabbergasted and you know i had seen people riding their bikes you know in the hallways and so uh long story short a week later i was in a private high school long island lutheran high school which was an amazing place in terms of role models, my father was my biggest role model. He believed that education was the key. Um, he was a student of Nelson Mandela, and so that was one of my role models. I did an extensive report on Nelson Mandela and apartheid, 
and Nelson Mandela said education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. So my, my father was my, my biggest role model, incredible, worked three jobs. Uh, I was born three days after John F. Kennedy was assassinated and have always been, fat, as a result, have been fascinated by his words and his life. And I always wondered what it was like for my mother to have be, be given birth in a few days and the president is assassinated. And, and the whole Kennedy family and, and the quote that you see things as they are and you ask why, I dream, dream things that never were and I say why not. Uh, that, that was always fascinated to me from from the Kennedy family. Okay. Now, how, how did your father's immigrant experience shape your worldview? That's an interesting question. You know, um, I, I think that his belief was coming to a foreign country, if you got educated and you worked hard, you would succeed and achieve. And so that is basically what he instilled in me, and, and, and that's my view my view of the world, frankly. That's wonderful. That's, that's terrific. Now, at, at, at Delphi University, you majored in uh, accounting. How did that uh, evolve into the study of law? The study of law was based on brainwashing. Father from a foreign country, you have to be a doctor or a lawyer, period. There's no other, there, there is no other choice. And so I did great in biology in high school, uh, and I uh, was considering becoming a doctor. If I was a doctor, I'd be a surgeon. If I was a lawyer, I wanted to be a litigation attorney. And I found in high school that I just did not like the side of blood. So that was the end of uh, my my career, uh, my proposed career as a doctor. So my plan was to always go to law school at that point. And part of the, you know, part of the brainwashing is, oh, you make a good argument, or you 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 know, you're a good debater, uh, and that was pretty much since I was born. But my father did say that I should, and everyone should always have a backup, a safety net. And so that's why I studied accounting, because that, that was my safety net. I could get a degree in accounting, get a CPA, and then that was, that was the end of the story. I would not have to go you know, further. And so that, that's what caused uh, me to major in accounting. And I was always interested in, in business. And I'll tell you, I tried that same brainwashing on my two daughters. They're 10 and 12. And I said, Dr. Lawyer. And my older daughter, Alexandra, we used to say she's going to be a lawyer. She'll be a lawyer. So I took them uh, on a trip a couple of years ago to the Boston and I took her to Harvard. And I said, this is a phenomenal law school, Harvard Law School. I bought her the shirt. I bought her the hat. And she had always said she wanted to be a lawyer for years before that. And the woman walked by and said, oh, that's cute. Uh, you want to be a lawyer and go to Harvard Law School? And to my surprise, my daughter said, no, I don't want to be a lawyer, and I don't want to go to Harvard Law School. So <laughs> and I said, Lexi, you don't want to go to law school? You don't want to be a lawyer? And she said, no, no, Daddy, I don't. I said, well, what do you want to be? And she said, well, I want to be an engineer, and I want to go to MIT. And so I said, MIT's right down the block. We'll take, get back in the car. We'll go see MIT, and we'll get the hat and the shirt from MIT. <laughs> So what I've learned is flexibility. My father was not flexible. My, my, my uh, I uh, handle it a little differently. Uh, so I'm flexible. That's what she's interested in. So I support her in that. But your children are still benefiting from the lessons your father taught you about education. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Now, you've been a judge for, gosh, 20 years, I think now. How did you position yourself to have that opportunity? 
you know, I have to, I have to admit, I, I, I didn't position myself to be on the bench. I knew ultimately, you know, being a judge was a pinnacle of the legal profession. And at some point, uh, you know, I would want to become a judge. But my goal was to be the best trial lawyer possible, to be able to try any case at any time, whether it was criminal or civil, and to represent clients to the best of my ability. So I positioned myself to do that. Interesting footnote on the accounting degree. Uh, as I was graduating from law school, Arthur Anderson, was, which was one of the big eight accounting firms back in 1988, came and came to the campus and recruited me. Uh, and they said, you have an undergraduate in accounting. Uh, we'd like you to come work for us in our tax law department. And I, I really was, uh, you know, underwhelmed by uh, that. But they indicated that I would go on audits and I would get my CPA and uh, they would pay for me to get an LLM in tax. And the salary was unbelievable. So, so I, 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 I took a shot and I, I, I worked for Arthur Anderson for a year. And I realized I was just doing tax returns. And my goal was to be a trial attorney. So I left Arthur Anderson and I went back to the firm that I had interned with during law school and asked them, you know, if I could be their associate. They weren't hiring at the time. And what I said to them was, maybe I can just sit in your conference room. I need to have a place to go. And then you can send me on per diem work. And, and so that actually turned into a, an associate's position. And I would go to any court, family court, Supreme Court, criminal court and handle matters the only setback was only partners were able to try cases, and that was not satisfying to me. So uh, I left that firm and joined the Nassau County District Attorney's Office because I knew I would be trying cases every day. So that would, the positioning was to get to be the best trial attorney. When I left there, I was a senior prosecutor, and then I became a partner uh, in a Wall Street law firm where I handled all the civil litigation and was the managing partner. So that was the positioning. Ultimately, I started my own law firm, and I had heard that locally, this is in Nassau County, they were looking for candidates for, for, for judge. And I went to my mentor, who was one of the partners in that first law firm that I uh, worked for, took a meeting, uh, and then that opened the doors to me becoming judge. Really not within the timetable that I thought. I thought it would be many years later, 10, 15 years later. But my view was when the window opens, you jump through the window because you don't know if the window will open again. And so now 19, 18, 19 years later, I am, I am I'm still on the bench. So I, I think it was a very satisfying decision at that point. It sounds like you were able to do that without really a political base or a political rabbi. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, and back to education work hard and merit, and, and that has opened that has opened doors for me. Hmm. So hard work and merit can, in, at least in some cases, uh, trump political connections or, or, or yeah. sidestep them anyhow. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, how'd you get into judicial administration? You've been an administrator since, oh, I don't know, seven or eight years, I guess, since Judge Prudente appointed you as a supervising judge in Nassau County, I think the district court. Why were you interested in administration? It seems like you like trial work. I imagine you like being a trial judge. So why, why, why would you want to be an administrator? I actually did not. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Judge Prudenti, who was the chief administrative judge, absolutely was phenomenal. And she's doing a phenomenal job uh, at Hofstra Law School, which is obviously my alma mater. I only wanted to try cases as, a, as an attorney, and I only wanted to try cases 
as a judge and as a district court judge i would average 46 trials a year um, because i wanted to stay on trial i thought that that was the most important thing that i could do as a judge to get people to closure on their cases the only reason I, there wasn't 52 cases a year is because we have six weeks uh, vacation that we have to take so i never even considered administration at all frankly although i was managing partner of my law firm that still allowed me to try all of the cases that I wanted to try. So back then, and this was probably uh, 2013, the administrative judge, Judge Anthony Morano, who happened to have been one of the first judges that I tried cases before as a young assistant district attorney back in 1991, saw in me something and encouraged me to get involved in administration. And I have to tell you, it was a hard sell because I still wanted to try cases. And frankly, I thought I still would be able to try cases, and that's why I put my name in in the uh, in, in in the hat to, to be considered as a supervising judge. Was appointed, uh, and then realized very quickly that the ability to try cases was very slim. So I set up a an old case part where all of the old cases in the district court would come to me, and then I would send them out for trial, uh, and then theoretically could keep them for trial, which really never happened because it was it was extremely busy, 26 judges over 300 non-judicial uh, employees. So I didn't, it wasn't a goal, but uh, once I started doing it, I saw the need, it was challenging. You know, I had gotten to the point, I love trying cases, but I had gotten to the point where the actual trial of the case wasn't challenging. I loved doing it, but it was, you know, call your witness, you know, bring in the jury, uh, let's read the verdict. What I found in administration was day-to-day, minute-to-minute, there was a challenge. And so that is what piqued my interest back in 2013, and that's just expanded since then, you know, having been the administrative judge of Nassau County for three years and, and now the DCAJ, it's expanded that exponentially in terms of responsibility and, and workload. But uh, as I said, it, it's expanded uh, my uh, ability to be challenged, which is something I enjoy. Now, your DCAJ duty sounds like a t- tale of two states, or actually a tale of about 12 states. I mean, you preside over an astonishingly diverse and eclectic region. You've got major cities like Buffalo and Albany and Binghamton, and most of the, in the most rural areas of the state, and your home on Long Island. All of these are very, very different places. And what is it key or what are the challenges to administer administering such a large and diverse area of different cultures, different traditions, different needs, different politics, different practices? How do you do that? You know, you have identified all of the challenges. Those are the challenges. The first challenge is the ge- geographical distance. It's a massive, massive state, massive distance. And so you have to come up with, in terms of handling the distance, a game plan and a strategy. And so, because it was my goal to visit all of the districts uh, outside of New York City in the first 30 days, which, which I was able to accomplish. And so what we looked at, we, we basically uh, cut the map up into two days uh, in, in two districts. So uh, I flew into Buffalo and I spent the day in Buffalo and then went to Rochester from Buffalo. So that's the eighth and the seventh judicial districts. Then Syracuse and Binghamton, sixth and fifth, I did on uh, a separate trip. 
the third and the fourth, uh, I have an office in Albany, which I spend half the week at, in that office. So Albany is the third judicial district, and the fourth judicial district is about an hour, an hour and a half north. Uh, and then uh, the other half of the week, I'm in Long Island, which gives me access to Nassau, Suffolk, and the ninth judicial district, which is centered in Westchester. So strategy in terms of distance, in terms of, um, you know, there's uh, a culture of upstate versus downstate. And initially, there was a view that someone from downstate couldn't relate to upstate. Now, Long Island is considered part of upstate because it's outside of New York City. So we have inside New York City and outside New York City. And so that is a matter of, of traveling to those areas and, and being seen and being present and discussing matters throughout the state to overcome this upstate, downstate mentality. Similarly, in terms of cultural cities, suburbs, rural, town and village, they're all different. Long Island has cities, has suburbs, has rural, we have town and villages. So in terms of, you know, relating to upstate, it's not, really not different than what we have on, on Long Island. So again, when you connect with people, you gain their trust, you listen to them. I, I think that's the best way to overcome those cultural challenges and uh, the geographical uh, challenges are, are based upon how, how you uh, schedule your travel. The other thing is you have to be flexible. If the goal is X and you go upstate and they're nowhere near X in a certain county, then you work with them. You put a plan together to get them to that point. You know, many things are not going to happen overnight. The other, the finally, you need a great team because you can't do it. I can't do it all myself. I have a great team in my office in Albany. My um, chief of staff, deputy chief of staff, I have great chamber staff here in Nassau County. And then the administrative judges throughout the third district through the 10th, including the presiding justice of the Court of Claims, amazing, amazing administrators, amazing people. One thing my predecessor was able to accomplish, Judge Caruso, was through the pandemic, all of us met as administrative judges every day, virtually. And we really established a family. And so working with these administrative judges is almost like working with the family. And so the, the ability to come together, discuss, and address all the needs through the state is also accomplished by working with uh, a great team. It sounds like a whole is greater than the sum of its parts uh, story. Absolutely, yes. Mm. Now, the chief judge has, has always made diversity and equal justice uh, priorities in her administration, and you know perhaps more so after the Jay Johnson reports show that we have a long way to go. What is the role of a DCJ, DCAJ in implementing her vision and her mission? Imagine that you suspect there's an issue and you bring an outsider in, a stranger, and give that person complete reign of inquiry to analyze and report. Uh, that means you really want to get to the bottom of the problem and resolve the problem. And so, you know, uh, Secretary Johnson, you know, well-respected, esteemed scholar came in and, and really took our system apart and took the uh, New York court system to task and identified major areas of concern, which we are working on. We're working on his recommendations every day. To get, I am working on them outside of New York City. Inside New York City, Deputy Chief Administrative Judge Kaplan is working on the recommendations. We work every day with De Deputy Chief 
administrative judge, uh, Edwina Mendelson, who, who is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. But that's the job. The job is to implement all of the chief judges' directives, missions, goals, working with the chief administrative judge, chief, uh, chief administrative judge Marks. That is what the job is. And so that's what we do every day. Also, we also represent the districts to OCA. What do the districts need? So it's, you know, it's a dual role. It's working with all of the districts to implement the chief judge's directives. And it's also discussing with the Office of Court Administration the needs of the different districts. And as you know, the Excellence Initiative, it has two parts. One is quality services to all court users. And the other is to have matters handled effectively, expeditiously, and efficiently so that cases don't get old. But at this, at this point, so we, we're doing that every day. At this point, diversity and equal justice is paramount. It's an urgent priority given the report. And I have to tell you, the report was tough to read and tough to digest. The fact that in the 2020s, this is not the 60s, in the 2020s, we're still struggling with these issues. I went to an exhibit in Ulster County a few weeks ago regarding Sojourner Truth. And really, I, I did not know the entire story of Sojourner Truth. I knew generally about it, and I've studied it since then. And she came into our courts in Ulster County in 1828 for equal justice to get the return of her son who was sold into slavery in Alabama. And she received equal justice, and she received the return of her son. 1828 and to say that now in 2021 2022 we're still we still have uh, these issues it is disappointing but the jay johnson report has given us a roadmap and it's encouraging we see changes you know on a day-to-day basis and i'm excited to be involved in the, in the changes in our court system we have to roll up our sleeves have difficult conversations and make changes one of the big uh, change is zero tolerance, and I think it's important, and the chief judge has, has established that. There's zero tolerance in terms of issues regarding, regarding bias. So we have our work to do. I'm encouraged and um, invigorated and energized to, to, to assist in doing that work. Are you the first DCAJ of color? You must be. I, I absolutely am not. Deputy Chief Administrative Judge Fern Fisher. I don't know for the, for the courts outside of New York City. Oh, okay. Okay. So for Fisher in the city, uh, DCAJ and Edwina Middleton, as you know, sure. um, outside of New York City, uh, yes, yes, I am. Now, do you think your background, both racially and as a second generation of an immigrant or a child of an immigrant, forward you with a different perspective? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, how you grow up and what you're exposed to always colors how you see the world and, and gives you a different perspective, you know, growing up in a, a multicultural family. You know, I, my uh, parents used to send me to Jamaica. Instead of going to summer camp, you know, when I was 8, 9, 10, 11, I would be sent to Jamaica to spend time with my grandmother in Jamaica, West Indies. And, you know, there was no uh, electricity, no hot water. Um, so, you you know, we have everything that we, we know here and we accept and expect. But when you, you at the same time juxtapose that on 
you know, saying there's no hot water, Grandma, and she says, we have hot water, wait until the sun is high in the sky, it'll heat the, the pipes, and waking up, you know, for the ice truck to come by to get a block of ice to put in a box, which is an ice box, and then to go shopping for food, you know, all of that, all of that gives you perspective, and, and what it's given to me, you know, in addition to being, having been a trial attorney, a prosecutor, doing state and federal work, criminal and civil, being in private practice, managing a firm, sitting in every court, doing accounting, I'm, I believe I'm able to relate in some way to everyone and, and anyone. And I think that makes a difference when you are uh, attempting to work with people and, and gain trust and respect. You know, I can always find something in common. When I go to upstate to small towns, I can relate to small towns. You know, I worked in a law firm in the city. I can relate to the city. I lived in the suburbs. So I think all of that is important. And, you know, it, it's the way you grow up absolutely uh, affects how you see the world. I would say that moving forward, the theme of my administration, I would like to be excellence and opportunity. And so following up on, on the poem that I, I read to you, Heights by Great Men and Women Reached and Kept. So that's, that's how I want to move forward in this position. What a wonderful way to move forward. Thank you, Judge. Thank you.